The contrast that I wish to deal with today is the contrast between knowing that your sins are forgiven completely with absolute assurance, with perfect peace before the All-Holy God, and the disappointment, the failure and the dangers involved in forgiveness that is purported to come through the priest and the confession box, what the Catholic Church calls the Sacrament of Confession. The Sacrament of Confession is something that I did for many years. I was 22 years a priest. And it was something that shocked me as I began my life as a priest, even though I'd been trained to do the sacraments when I actually sat in a confession box in my first parish in Port of Spain, Park Street, in Trinidad, West Indies, when I sat in a confession box on a Saturday for three hours, age 26, and listen to the sins that were poured out upon me, I was truly shocked. I would sweat profusely, and that wasn't simply because it was the tropics. It was because I was hearing things that I didn't expect that human beings would tell one another. And I was right up close to the person confessing. It was just a, a steel grill between me and them, so I could see the, the cheeks and I could see the lips of the person. And often with young ladies confessing to me their sexual aberrations, I could see the sweat here on the top of their lips and the lower cheeks. Because to them it was an embarrassment also to tell me of all their misconduct. And I had to ask questions to know the number and kind of sin because it was a mortal sin on me not to find out all the mortal sins that somebody had committed. It was quite difficult and I did that for three hours every Saturday from three o'clock to six o'clock with many other priests. And then we had an evening meal and then from seven to eight o'clock we again sat in the confession box and people would line up and come in and confess their sins. It was like sitting in a garbage dumpster with all of this garbage poured on top of you. And I would lift up my hand and say, I absolve you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We said the words in Latin in those days, and I really believed that as I said those words, that people were absolved of their sins, that people were forgiven their sins. I really believe that this is how sins were forgiven. I had been taught that by my Catholic teaching and I believed that I had the power as a priest to forgive people's sins. I didn't have any doubt whatsoever. It was difficult for me when the same people came back week after week with the same sins. That was quite difficult, but it didn't cause any disturbance in my mind because... The church said that it had power and I shared in that power to forgive sins. In my first parish where I was in the southeast, 
coast of Trinidad and actually was living on the beach. Uh, and I had a main church there, two other churches and different outstations. Things began to be a bit more difficult because it wasn't only confession on Saturday and when people came for confession, but it was on Sunday morning as well. I had three Masses. The first Mass was in the main church and I had heard the confessions of that area on Saturday. But then the other two places I had confessions before the Mass. And I would have to sit and hear confessions in an outstation where you would have a kneeler and I would sit on a chair and the other person would come and kneel beside me. There was no grating now. They were right beside you and confess their sins. And this was before I was going to celebrate the Mass in which we said Christ physically was in the bread and that the same victim as was on the cross was offered, was supposed to be the holiest thing we did as a priest, the Mass. And before it, I got loaded down with these sins. It was quite difficult. And then the time constraint, because I had three Masses and they had to begin on time, and often I had to rush through the confessions so that the Mass would start on time. And it was a, a great torment to me because I was so devout that I would run through confessions and maybe not inquire enough or ask enough questions before I gave the absolution. And so these were difficulties I had. Again, when people came back with the same fornications, adulteries and thefts and other things, and of course, missing Mass on Sunday, which was one of the main mortal sins that Catholics confessed. But when I heard the same sins again and again, it was difficult. I had some fleeting doubts, but nothing that retained in my memory because I believe that the Church taught us the truth. It was only in my last seven years of my total 21 years in Trinidad, I was 22 years altogether, one year in Rome, but when my last year in the priesthood that I really began to have doubts, because it was then that I was studying the scripture on many lines, and I saw that the power to forgive sins was in the gospel to be preached, as the person believed on Christ Jesus that all their sins are washed away and that they become 100% perfect with his righteousness credited to them, reckoned to them. The righteousness of God through faith, as Paul preached. And I saw that what the Bible says, who can forgive sins but God alone, I saw that this was true. And I be stopped hearing confessions in that last year. And as you can imagine, there were real, real difficulties because I was reported to the Archbishop that I was not hearing confessions and people were going to the neighboring parishes to get their confessions heard, including some of the nuns that were in my parish and it was really difficult. I was being reported, but it wasn't only on this topic I was being reported, it was other topics as well. I'd taken out the statues and did a lot of other things that According to Catholic law, I should not have done. But according to Bible teaching that I was trying to implement, I should have done. So, 
It was really difficult in my last year and I stopped hearing confessions. It was a difficult time for me and I was beginning to see the light in the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And that's what the scripture says the wonder of the gospel, how sins are forgiven. The apostle said, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. This is the message that the apostles preached. Unto them the message was given. And through the message, the power of God was forgiveness of sin. The finished work of Christ Jesus in the words of the Apostle Paul, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. I was beginning to see that in the words of the different Apostles, and Paul in particular. And that after salvation, as we are saved before the All-Holy God, if somebody sins, it is a relationship problem. And the scriptures deal with that too. The Apostle John tells us in the very first chapter of his first letter that if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and true to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we sin after salvation, we take it to God directly and we confess to our Father in heaven. It's a relationship problem. And we all know that we can be in a situation where we need to confess to God after we have had salvation because we have God and we take it to God directly because that's what the scripture says. The Catholics, however, teach that it is in a box, a confession box, and in the ear of a priest that you confess your sins. And the there are many different names because there are different angles that the Catholic Church looks at. So we've got to look at some of the official teaching. I'm using the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is the official first-hand teaching I'm giving quotations from so that we be authentic, so that we know exactly what the Catholic Church says regarding uh, this sacrament that they call the sacrament of confession is the usual popular name but it's also called the sacrament of conversion and it's called the sacrament of penance for example in paragraph 980 of the catechism quotation it is through the sacraments of penance that the baptized can be reconciled with God and with the church the sacrament of penance is necessary for salvation for those who have fallen after baptism, just as baptism is necessary for salvation for those who have not yet been reborn. And so they say that just as you need another physical sacrament, baptism to be reborn in the first place, so you need confession or the sacrament of penance if you lose that first justification that you got. 
So this is their idea that you need a second plank, and this is going to be their actual words. Quoting from paragraph 1446 of the Catechism, they say, quotation, Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of his church, above all for those who since baptism have fallen into grave sin and have thus lost their baptismal grace. It is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of justification. The fathers of the church present this sacrament as the second plank of salvation after the shipwreck, which is the loss of grace. And so this is the second plank, they say, that after you lose the gift of justification, you can have it restored by confessing into the ear of a priest. Now this idea of having justification and then losing it is totally unknown in Scripture. If you are justified by God, it's His work by grace through faith and it is never lost. Like, for example, Christ Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. A believer is in the grip of Christ Jesus and of the Father. Their salvation is secure because of whose work it is. Salvation is of God. We have relationship problems after salvation, but we do not go like a yo-yo in and out of salvation. It is something that we have assurance of because of who God is who saves us. But the Catholic has this type of yo-yo that you can be in and out of justification and they call the coming in again the sacrament of penance. The popular name is the sacrament of confession. And they say in paragraph 1424, it is called the sacrament of confession since the disclosure or confession of sins to a priest is an essential element of this sacrament. So whispering your sins into the ear of a priest, that is an essential element. And so it gets the name confession and that is the name that it is generally known by, the sacrament of confession. Now, it's not just that the priest has power, but there is a hierarchy of power. And the Catholic Church spells out this. This is like the military, you know, where you know, a man may be a sergeant, but he's under you know, the commanding officer and other officers. This is not just that the priest has power of himself. And this is spelled out in the same catechism, 1462. From ancient times, the bishop, the visible head of a particular church, thus has rightly been considered to be the one who principally has the power and ministry of reconciliation. He it is, 
He is the moderator of penitential discipline. Priests, his collaborators, exercise it to the extent that they have received the commission either from their bishop or religious superior or the pope according to the law of the church. End of quotation. So the priests have to get this power from their bishop. We call that in the Catholic Church getting faculties. We talked about having an innate power, but it was like they're not plugged in. You know, you've got to be locally plugged in to, for the power to work. Like when I went to Trinidad, I got faculties from the arch, through the archbishop so that I could hear confessions in the island of Trinidad. I was locally plugged in through the archbishop so that I could give people absolution in Trinidad. I remember once coming back to Ireland on holiday and on the street where I lived there was a young man that I had known and he had a car accident and he was really messed up, badly injured and he wanted to confess his sins to me. So I went to him and he begged me that he could confess his sins to me. And I didn't have faculties in Dublin, so I applied to the Archbishop's house to get faculties, power from the Dublin Archbishop so that I could hear his confession. I was refused because I was not one working in Dublin and I was not eligible to have faculties in the Archdiocese of Dublin. So that's the idea that it's the power of a chain of command and it really is the bishop who resides the complete power and the priest has got to be plugged in as it were to, to share in the bishop's power so this whole idea of faculties in the Catholic Church and you would hear a priest talking about having faculties in a particular diocese so the sacrament is said to be resident particularly in the bishop and he shares it with his collaborators. Now there are some outlandish claims for this priest and the forgiveness and I'd like to read what the Catholic Church says about the forgiveness that it has and what its priests have. Reading from paragraph 982 of the Catechism quotation there is no offense however serious that the church cannot forgive. There is no one, however wicked or guilty, who may not confidently hope for forgiveness, provided his repentance is honest. Now, how anybody could say this is really unbelievable. There is no offense, however serious, that the church cannot forgive. No church, no church on this earth has divine power. There's no church. There's no individual on this earth that has divine power to forgive sins. There is power in the gospel as is it proclaimed, but it doesn't reside in any church or in any individual. So to say there is no offense however serious that this church cannot forgive is really speaking against who God is. And then the following paragraph says, 983, the power of priests. 
Priests have received from God a power that he has given neither to angels nor archangels. God confirms what priests do here below. Were there of sins in the church, there would be no hope of life to come or eternal liberation. End of quotation. So priests, they say, have power that even archangels don't have. So, and God confirms what the priests do on earth. This is rather difficult to stomach as you might imagine that the the type of arrogance that anybody could dare say these things knowing the character of who God is. No man forgives. No church system. We read one of many, many scriptures. The Lord God says in the pages of the Bible, I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgression." For my own sake, and will remember not thy sins. I, even I, God emphasizing the personal pronoun twice. I, even I, to show that it is God alone who forgives sins. The scripture is emphatic that this is part of who God is, that He is the one offended and He is the one who forgives. Now it's not only the church says that they have power to forgive sins, they are the one that decree that a person is obliged to confess into the ear of a man. You must confess your sins. This is in paragraph 1483 of the Catechism. Quotation one who desires to obtain reconciliation with God and with the church must confess to a priest all the unconfessed grave sins he remembers after having carefully examined his conscience. You must confess. It is an obligation. The same obligation is in the official Law called the Canon Law of the Catholic Church, Canon 960, quotation, individual and integral confession and absolution constitute the only ordinary means by which a member of the faithful, conscious of grave sin, is reconciled with God and the Church. The ordinary means, the only ordinary means, is confessing into the ear of a priest. So a person must do this. It is actually a mortal sin if you don't confess once a year. It is part of the rules of the Catholic Church. So you commit another sin if you don't confess. You are conf obliged, it's called you know, the, the uh, Easter duty or that usually comes around that time of the year where you must go to confession and communion at least once a year. So it's a, another mortal sin if you don't confess your mortal sins into the ear of a priest. This humiliating experience is obligatory in Catholicism. And so the gospel is replaced by a ritual that is 
quite dangerous. It is quite hazardous. The Catholic Church nonetheless says that the power exercised by the priest is judicial power. It's not simply that the priest is saying that God forgives you your sins or that it is his prayer that God will forgive you your sins. He's saying, I absolve you. And the Catholic Church is emphatic about this, that it is the judicial power of the priest to forgive. I quote from the sources of Catholic dogma. This is the official teaching of the Catholic Church in the book called Denzinger, number 902. Quotation. However, although the absolution of the priest is the dispensation of the benefaction of another, yet it is not a bare ministry only, either an announcing the gospel or declaring the forgiveness of sins, but it is equivalent to a judicial act by which pronounced by him as a judge. So the priest as a judge pronounces forgiveness. And so they say this is not merely a declaration of forgiveness that God has forgiven you. This is the priest himself acting as judge. Now the the Catholic Church claims a scripture in the midst of all of this, something that we don't find regularly in Catholicism, but here is an exception. The Catholic Church here claims a scripture to verify what they're doing. And so we have to be honest and say that they do claim a scripture. And they give that in the Catechism. So, reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they say the following in paragraph 1485. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus showed himself to his apostles. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And they give the citation, John 20, 19, verses 22 to 23. How do we see that text? John 20, 23. If you read it in the Bible, there's no if. It's not conditional. Scripture does not have the if clause. It reads, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. This is a real summary of the whole gospel. As the gospel is preached and as the apostles preach the gospel, as the forgiveness of sins is preached in Christ Jesus by his blood and finished work, people's sins are forgiven because God has already forgiven those who believe on him. This is a summation of the whole gospel message. And so this chapter 20 of John's gospel is parallel to the Great Commission. 
in Matthew 28, the Great Commission in Mark 16, and in Luke 24, where the commission is given to go and preach the gospel to every creature. Yes, indeed, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. Why it is so urgent to preach the gospel so that as people believe on Christ Jesus, their sins are forgiven. Because all who receive the gospel are forgiven. And that's how the apostles understood it. Take up your Bible and see where the apostles went. Into the public squares, before the temple, into the synagogues. They proclaimed openly the gospel message. They did not sit in boxes listening in whispers and having people whisper into their ear. It was not some box type of encounter. It was public proclamation of the gospel. That's how they understood it and that's how it was lived out. And that's how it's still lived out as people preach the gospel. So this is a good summation of the gospel. But it is no justification to jump over centuries and somehow suppose that priests are plugged into this, um, to this power because this is the gospel power that is in the gospel of Christ Jesus. And it is not a justification of any ritual of any priest because the priesthood, the sacrificial priesthood to give forgiveness does not exist as we'll see later on in the New Testament. So we have no justification from that text. We have the gospel again proclaimed in which sins are forgiven as somebody trusts on Christ Jesus. The dangers early on are very prevalent in the Catholic Church and we've seen more and more in recent times revelation of the dangers that have come out of the confession box. Most of the pedophilia, a lot of it, and a lot of the homosexuality and the dangers and the Horrific things that we have heard about since about 1994 as the Boston Globe took it on itself to reveal some of the inner workings of what happens in Catholicism have dealt with what happens through the confession box because it's there that there is these close encounters with young boys besides having acolytes or altar boys but it is there that a, a man is brought into contact with young people and with women. And so a lot of the scandals have arisen out of the confessional. And the Catholic Church has been quite aware of the dangers that are involved as this architect sort of a thing where you have two sinners sitting in a box. One says he's ordained with power from on high and the other is pleading for forgiveness, and they're sitting, one is kneeling and the other is sitting, and somehow they think that forgiveness is siphoned off into the, into the soul of the one who is confessing. This is substituted 
for the encounter where a sinner comes before God and the Holy Spirit convicts. And that's how sad it is because look what it's a substitution for. It's a substitution for the intimacy that someone has before God as the Holy Spirit reveals your sins and you're convicted of God that you're a sinner. And before God in the intimacy of your own personal prayer, you cry out to God for forgiveness. Here we have two sinners in close proximity to each other. And there are dangers, and these dangers are spelled out in some of the law of the church. For example, in Canon 977, it says the following quotation, The absolution of an accomplice in a sin against the sixth commandment of the Decalogue is invalid except in danger of death. So if a priest gives absolution to somebody he has committed a sin with because of his involvement with them through the confession box, he gives absolution to that person it is invalid. So they're trying to cut off immorality in the confession box by saying it's invalid. The commandments are numbered different in the Catholic Church and that's why it says the sixth commandment because that's the way they are numbered in the Catholic Church. Thou shalt not commit adultery is number six in the Catholic Church. So the laws are emphatic in the Church. In present time, the present Pope has decreed that there should be a special tribunal in Rome set up for inquiry into pedophilia and other the things that are happening because of confession and there's an official quotation given on the internet regarding this from the Catholic sources. Quotation, the grave offenses against the sacrament of reconciliation. To give absolution to someone who is an accomplice of the priest is a sin against the sixth commandment. To invite on the occasion, at the moment, or with the pretext of confession, to sin against the Sixth Commandment. To violate directly the secret of confession. Pedestry is a crime against customs. It is a sin against the Sixth Commandment, committed between a minor under 18 years old and a priest. This is the beginning of the awareness of the warning of the dangers of the confession box. Given by the Catholic Church itself, aware of the dangers or the hazards. Now it's crass and supine ignorance to think that the knowledge of evil does not corrupt. That's why from the Garden of Eden, mankind was warned against the knowledge of evil because the knowledge of evil corrupts and so to have a man be filled with all evil in close proximity to sinners and not expect that he's going to be tarnished or involved in evil himself is ridiculous and silly that you would not allow this. Even in the ordinary world of counseling, where a person goes to an ordinary secular counselor, the laws are that there must be somebody present. 
There must always be a secretary presence at the sea, what is happening between the counsellor and the person that's been involved. If a counsellor is counselling a young woman in the secular world, there's somebody present that can see what is happening. This is the ordinary precautions that the world takes. Even executives in the business cooperation of the United States or anywhere in the world, if a company was to put its men in this hazard of, of, you know, sexual deviation, to put them in close proximity where they could sin, that company would be suspended from business. Their, their business would not be allowed to continue. But the Catholic Church continues because of its clout and power in society. But this sort of practice would not be allowed in the ordinary secular world or in the business world. But the Catholic Church allows it. And they have laws by which they try to make it impossible or try to make it more difficult to sin. They say, for example, in Canon 979, quotation, Imposing questions, the priest is to proceed with prudence and discretion, attentive to the condition and age of the penitent, and to refrain from asking the name of the accomplice. The priest is not to ask the name of the partner in crime, and he is to proceed with discretion and prudence, given the age of the person confessing their sins. So the Catholic Church is aware that there are hazards and dangers. And he tells the priests of the hazards and dangers, but this doesn't alleviate them. The laws do not make it easier for the priest. And Bach's confession continues to be a hazard. It's not simply that this thing is difficult, but this thing is obliged. Confessions can be heard in other places besides in the confession box. But the Catholic Church is emphatic that it should be in the box. And I'm reading now from Canon 964, quotation. Confessions are not to be heard outside a confessional without a just cause. Without a just or serious cause, you're not to go outside the box. And so... This type of box confession is obligatory. Now, a priest can hear confessions outside the box, but this is the normal way that he is supposed to do it. And so, you wonder just how these things could be. What did Christ Jesus say? If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We know the truth by the written word of God. I thank God that I've had the blessing and privilege of putting together a book of 50 testimonies of former priests who saw beyond this ritual and saw forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And that there are quite a number of us who were into this and are now are free because we saw the written word of God and we saw the gospel and we trusted on Christ Jesus. But that is 
the message for you, precious Catholic, viewing this message, and precious Catholic, listening to the message, that if the Son set you free, you shall be free indeed. Now we look to a person, no church, we look to a person to forgive sins. The biblical salvation is like the apostle said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved, thou and thy house. It is a message that is... Because there is power in God. And Christ Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. And so it is the demonstration of who God is, that he may be just and the justifier of them which believe. It is God who forgives because of who he is. And he is the God of all grace. He seeks out his own. And as you admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation, and go directly to him, you find salvation. I know what it is to have people come back week after week and to go to confession myself and to see that this thing does not deliver. This thing does not change lives. And I say that to a precious Catholic who's gone to confession all their lives. Many Catholics have given up confession and it's not popular whatsoever. There are far fewer going to confession now than in times past particularly in the United States where we have cafeteria, Catholicism, where they pick and choose. This is not one of the sacraments that is chosen. It's not quite popular, to say the least. But it's still the law. And this is how sins are to be forgiven. And what hope have you if you're afraid to go to confession? You don't want to do your Catholic things. What do you do? You go directly to God. You admit before God that you're a sinner. You cry out to him for his grace. And then like the thousands and thousands of other Catholics, it's a great joy to me, sometimes on the East Coast, like on the West Coast, where I go to a church and it's 60% of us former Catholics. We make up often the backbone of, of, of Bible-believing church. When I was in John MacArthur's church in L.A., it was 60%. Former Catholics. So many of us are saved because we look to God in Christ Jesus as Catholics. And God saves us. And then, with love for Catholics, we come out from the system so that we may give the message to those that we dearly love. And so the Catholic Church still continues to say that they have the power. They say in paragraph 1441, by virtue of his, Christ's divine authority, he gives this power to man to exercise in his name. They claim to have divine power. Now how can we not expect the wrath of God to come against a decree is that, that men have divine power. How can this be? It was, while I was struggling with this in Trinidad, that I picked up a book written by one of our most 
famous Catholic scholars actually here in the United States. We had a biblical scholar called Raymond Brown and he was renowned across the world because as a Catholic biblical scholar he wrote many books. And he wrote one about the bishop and the priest and was published in the 70s and I didn't put my hand on it until the early 80s. And this is what I read in the book by our Catholic theologian and biblical scholar Raymond Brown. Quotation, When we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it is striking that while there were pagan priests and Jewish priests on the scene, no individual Christian is ever specifically identified as a priest. The epistle to the Hebrews speaks of the high priesthood of Jesus by comparing his death and entry into heaven with the actions of the Jewish high priest who went into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle once a year with a blood offering for himself and for the sins of his people. Hebrews 9, 6-7 But it is noteworthy that the author of Hebrews does not associate the priesthood of Jesus with the Eucharist or the Last Supper, neither does he suggest that other Christians are priests of Jesus. In fact, the once-for-all atmosphere that surrounds the priesthood of Jesus in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 12-14, has been offered as an explanation why there are no Christian priests in the New Testament period. This biblical scholar in Catholicism saying emphatically that there are no Christian priests in the New Testament. Now as I read that as a Catholic priest, I wondered, my office does not exist in the New Testament. This is said by a Catholic biblical scholar. And I began to search and I saw, yes, it only talks about the high priesthood of Christ. It only speaks about the one high priesthood of Christ. And what were the conditions of Christ's priesthood? Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens. Who could qualify? No earthly man. And it says that he has an unchangeable priesthood. When I studied that word, I had studied Greek in my training to the priesthood and I checked the Greek word behind the text, a parabatos. Unchangeable means untransferable, that his priesthood is not transferred to anybody else. And this is what the Bible says that he has a priesthood that is not transferable to anybody else. Reading from the Word of God, and they were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death, but this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to unto God by him, 
seeing that he liveth to make intercession for them. He has an unchangeable priesthood and he's able to save to the uttermost. And that was good news to me as a priest. I don't have a priesthood. You know, this I've been counting on for years. It's not in the New Testament. Brown goes on to explain in the same book, it came from sub-apostolic tradition. Just after the apostles of tradition came in. But it wasn't in the New Testament. And that's what hit me. And the fact that it was a Catholic scholar that said it. So, this is biblical truth. That there is only the high priesthood of Jesus. And we do not have any office of priesthood. Except the royal priesthood of praise, which is all believers. But that's not sacrificial. Or that's not a power priesthood. That's a praise. The priesthood of all believers is spoken of but not a sacrificial priesthood to minister with Christ's power. That is not in the pages of the New Testament. And so the important question for you, precious Catholic, is who is your priest? Who is your priest? Who do you look to? Who are you viewing for your hope and salvation. The pages of the New Testament present one who is holy, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens. He is the one that you look to. As the same book of Hebrews said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You look unto him, the priest who begins and finishes your faith. That's the one that you look unto. Because he is the one who has lived the perfect life and who died the perfect death. All that he did in all the years of his life in keeping the law, all of his actions were done in substitution for the believers who would believe on him. So that he fulfilled all righteousness. The scriptures were to proclaim that the righteousness of God by faith is unto all them that believe. That Christ's perfection rests on you. As it says in Colossians 2.10, ye are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in God, in Christ Jesus in God. Your life is hid with Christ in God, as the Apostle as the Apostle also says. You are complete in Him. So this is the one to whom you look. You have a priest, but he is in heaven. And he forgives sins. And when he forgives, you're totally forgiven, and you don't have to ever go back for justification again, you have assurance that you will be in him forever. So this is the one to whom you look. And you look with a surety and with a confidence that you are to have life in his name. It is 
the words of scripture when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high and that was another scripture that I read in those last days of my trying to live Catholicism and seeing that I could not do it anymore I would read in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power who when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high the brightness of the father's glory the express image of his person and this is the one who opposed the whole world by his power. We're talking about the Christ of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the one that you're looking to. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down. And that was my prayer at the end that I might be found in him that my sins will be purged by him and as I recognize that I was dead in trespasses and sins that I could be made right in him and that is my message to you today that you look to him and he is all glorious he is exactly as the scripture says the brightness of the father's the Father, the express image of his person. He has all power and authority and as you look to him you have grace to trust him and then you know the salvation and forgiveness that is in him and you will praise him forever. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.